The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson now presents his lecture, The Greatest Jewish Joke Ever Written. Let's start with the joke of a rabbi, an imam, and a priest who get together to kick back some steam. They live in a world, in a part of the world, where gambling was illegal. Nevertheless, they decided to give a hand at it, so they go down into the basement and they start gambling. The cops show up, they get rid of the evidence, the police officer comes down the steps, turns to the priest and says, were you gambling? He turns his eyes heavenward, he says, God forgive me for I'm about to sin. Officer, I was not gambling. He turns to the imam, he says, Mr. Imam, how about you? He turns his eyes heavenward, he says, Allah forgive me for I'm about to sin. Officer, I was not gambling. At this point he turns to the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, how about you? The rabbi looks at the officer and responds, with whom? Friends, in 1983, Rabbi Herman Adler, the chief rabbi of England at the time, wrote an essay about Jewish humor, which he published in the Eclectic Magazine. He was responding to comments made by two prominent intellectuals, Ernest Renan and Thomas Carlyle, suggesting that Jews completely lack the faculty of laughter. From the opening paragraph of Rabbi Adler's essay, we get a strong sense of the umbrage he took at these claims that his Jewish brethren were humor impaired. And I quote, there is an ancient Talmudic adage which says, if a person tells you you have donkey's ears, do not mind them. But if two people make the same assertion, at once place a pack saddle upon your back. Says Rabbi Adler, it might therefore be imagined that if two such eminent authorities agree in denying the Hebrew race the power of evoking laughter, there must be some basis for imputation. But I think I shall have no difficulty, he says, proving that this charge is unfounded. Interestingly, an article published in the beginning of the next century makes clear that the sting from Renan and Carlyle's claims of Jewish humorlessness were still deeply felt by the Jewish community. Published in the Jewish News of Northern California on the 28th of April, 1916, the article includes a fascinating review of a play put on by a local Jewish society called themselves Menorah Society. The play was titled In the Great Sanhedrin. An excerpt of the review reads as follows. The traditional belief is still strong that the Jews, in the words of Thomas Carlyle, one of the characters in the play, are, quote, a moping, melancholy race. Recently, several comedies have been written on Jewish wit in an attempt to counter this assumption. The story of the play in The Great Sanhedrin is already quite familiar. As the curtains rise, the lady judges are seen gossiping in the chamber of The Great Sanhedrin. With great excitement, the shamish announces the Av Din Rabbi Natan. The cases on the calendar are read by the scribe, and immediately the guard brings in Ernest Renan, the great French Semitic scholar. He is charged with libel for having accused the Jews of lacking the faculty of humor. No one will defend him, but Torquemada, the infamous inquisitor, 
of gloomy voice and sinister mien, stalks into the court and takes up the cudgels in defense of Renan. There is confusion in the court when it is announced that the prophet Isaiah, the prosecuting attorney of Zion, is ill. But the judges agree to allow Mr. Menorah, an up-to-date youngster, to serve as his substitute. Torquemada and Menorah parley. Mr. Menorah calls as his last witness his sister, Miss Menorah. She is a vivacious personality of modern tendencies. She produces a great stir in the court. Torquemada again protests, but Miss Menorah's sharp tongue silences him. Renan becomes more and more enthusiastic. Finally, her charms so captivate him that he denounces Torquemada, climbs the witness chair, and proclaims his apology. He will write a new book in defense of the cleverness and the wit of the Jewish people, and he will dedicate the work to Miss Menorah. Amid the cheers of the Sanhedrin, Torquemada is led to his dungeon, exclaiming, Oh, why did Christopher Columbus ever discover America? The triumph of Zion is complete. Now, friends, in 2022, one might find it difficult to believe that anyone would accuse the Jewish people of being unfunny. Indeed, in 1978, a Time magazine claimed that 80% of all stand-up comedians in America at the time were Jewish. Steve Allen, in his 1981 History of American Humor, Funny People, labeled comedy as a Jewish cottage industry. And indeed, a few years ago, New York Magazine's culture section, Vulture, published a megalistical titled The Hundred Jokes That Shaped Modern Comedy. With the help of comedians and historians of comedy, the magazine's editors compiled the most important jokes ever written. And lo and behold, Jews dominate the list. Just 2% of the U.S. population, the chosen people at a hand, in no fewer than 50 of Vulture's 100 greatest jokes. The association of Jews with humor is so strong that in 2013, in a Pew study, 42% of American Jews responded that having a sense of humor was an essential part of what being Jewish means to them. At a previous JLI retreat, I gave a talk on the unique characteristics of Jewish humor in particular. In other words, what makes a joke Jewish? One of the central themes was based on a quote from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, in his 1905 essay titled, Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. In the essay, referring to the Jewish people, Freud observed, I do not know whether there are many other instances of a people making fun to such a degree of their own character. This idea was later reaffirmed by the well-known British sociologist, Christy Davies, who conducted a study of humor around the world and its connection to Jewish humor. Davies argues that self-directed humor of the kind that Jews display when they laugh at themselves is a unique phenomenon. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the joke of a fellow who shows up to airport security with four sets of dentures. Security officer says, sir, why four? He says, well, listen, sir, I am a religious Jew. He says, so what? He says, religious Jews do not eat milky products together with meaty products, so I have two, one for meat and one for milk. He says, that's fantastic, but that only explains why you have two. What about the others? He says, well, sir, I'm a religious Jew. And every year, for about a week, we abstain from eating chametz, leavened products. So I have a special set of dentures for Passover. So he says, well, that explains three. What about the fourth? He says somewhat sheepishly, to be honest, 
Officer, from time to time, I like to have a ham sandwich. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Friends, in this joke which exposes the hypocrisy and the absurdity of a fellow who is so religiously punctilious, he has a special set of dentures designated specifically for when he eats non-kosher food as well. But more broadly speaking, this joke punches fun, pokes fun at the inconsistencies that we each possess by acknowledging that each of us have our own self-contradictions and blind spots. We hopefully become less self-righteous and judgmental of other people's perceived double standards. And there are countless Jewish jokes that do the same. You know the joke, perhaps, of the rabbi, the priest, and the imam who are comparing notes about a major issue they have in their respective houses of worship. They have a mice infestation. And the priest says, look, we took our mice down to the local river. We baptized them, and they're very devout. The imam says, look, we created these beautiful little uh, carpets for them, and they pray five times a day, and we don't have a problem. The rabbi says, look, what we did is we gathered them all together. We gave them a bar mitzvah, and we haven't seen them again. Incidentally, the great writer E.B. White once said, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. I share this as a preemptive apology for all the jokes I will be dissecting today. So in the talk I mentioned, I argued that the Jewish sense of humor is not a relatively modern invention, as some have suggested, but is in fact deeply rooted in Jewish values, which themselves stem directly from Judaism itself. In different words, the Jewish people's sense of humor is consciously and more often subconsciously or unconsciously rooted in a way of thinking and being that was shaped by the ideas, the ideals, the idiosyncrasies of the Bible and the Talmud among the entire corpus of Jewish thought. Incidentally, incredibly, the noted English mathematician and philosopher Alfred North Whitehead believed that the Hebrew Bible is, quote, without humor at all. In a book of dialogues he first published in 1956, Alfred claimed that, quote, the total absence of humor from the Bible is one of the most singular things in all of literature. At a different JLI retreat, some of you I can see and recognize attended that talk, I addressed this absurd claim and what I believe is one of the greatest mischaracterizations of the Hebrew Bible. The Torah is chock full of irony and satire, puns, riddles, and word plays. And one could argue that some of those very genres of humor were first introduced and even invented by the Bible. An example of biblical irony can be found in the satirical demise of the Jewish people's many enemies, from Bilam, who ends up blessing the Jewish people with his tail between his legs, to Haman, who ends up hanging on the very gallows he had built for his nemesis, Mordechai the Jew. I would argue that it's this very pattern that gave rise to a hallmark of Jewish humor, namely its uncanny ability to get back at our enemies by turning them into the butt of our jokes. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the joke of a Northwest Airways flight from Atlanta. There was a well-dressed middle-aged woman finds herself sitting next to a man wearing a kippah. She calls the attendant over to complain about her seating arrangement. What seems to be the problem, madam, asks the attendant. You've placed me next to a Jew. I can't possibly sit next to this man. Please find me another seat immediately. 
Madam, I will see what I can do to accommodate, the attendant replied. But the flight is full today, and I don't know if there's another seat available. A few minutes later, the attendant returns and says, Madam, the economy and club sections are full. However, we do have one seat left in first class. Before the lady had a chance to respond, the attendant continued. It is only on exceptions that we make this kind of upgrade. And I had to ask permission from the captain. But given the circumstances, the captain felt that no one should be forced to sit next to such an unpleasant person. Turning to the Jewish man sitting next to her, the flight attendant said, so if you'd like to get your things, sir, I have a seat for you in first class. <laughs> At this point, the surrounding passenger stood up and gave a standing ovation while the Jewish man walks to the front of the plane. The lady is incensed, and she says indignantly, the captain must have made a mistake. To which the attendant replied, no, ma'am, Captain Cohen never makes any mistakes. Today, however, I'd like to dwell on the inescapable fact that the Torah's sense of humor originates in the humor of its divine author. In simple terms, God does have a sense of humor and a wicked one at that. As one old Yiddishism has it, do you know how to make God laugh? Start making plans. They tell the joke of a liberal rabbi who was approached by one of his congregants who knew that he had a great penchant for playing golf with a free pass to an incredible golf course. The problem is, when the rabbi looked at the date, it happened to coincide with Yom Kippur. Somewhat torn, in the end, he decides to go with golf. He shows up to the golf course on the Judaism's holiest day, and lo and behold, he gets a hole in one. All the prosecuting angels clamor in the heavens, and they demand of God, is this justice? A rabbi puts golf before his congregation, and you give him a hole in one? God winks and says, with a good sense of humor, yes, but who can he tell? <laughs> Incredibly, in a fascinating passage of the Talmud, we learn that God actually spends considerable time each day exercising his sense of humor and being playful, as it were. If you look at text one, I think there are some handouts. I want to thank my wife for handing them out. Thank you, Hannah. So I'll share with you a synopsis as the handouts come around. Rav Yehuda says there are 12 hours in the day and then delineates what God does for each of the sets of three hours. And then he concludes, during the fourth three hours, God sits and makes sport with the Leviathan, as it is stated, there is Leviathan whom you have formed to sport with. As recounted by Rabbi Herschel Schachter during an eulogy that Rabbi Joseph Ber Soloveitchik, known as the Rav, gave at the funeral of Rabbi Moshe Shatzkes, Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested that the above quote from the Talmud helps the individual realize a more godly personality by recognizing that one does not have to take themselves so seriously. In essence, Rabbi Soloveitchik was suggesting that the statement from the Talmud helps us learn how to, to perform a certain mitzvah, the mitzvah of halachta bidrachav, which means to follow in God's ways. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the joke of a chazan, a cantor, who brags to his congregation in a booming voice, two years ago I insured my voice with Lloyds of London for three quarters of a million dollars. There's a hushed and awed silence in the crowded room. 
Suddenly from the back of the room, the quiet voice of an elderly woman is heard asking, Nu, so what did you do with all the money? As the following text further reinforces, from God's perspective, there is something downright noble about a good sense of humor, especially when it results in spreading cheer and joy to others. Let's look at text two. Rabbi Baroka was often found in the market of Belefet, and Elijah the prophet would often appear to him. Once, Rabbi Baroka says to Elijah, of all the people who come here, is there anyone in this marketplace worthy of the world to come? Elijah says to Rabbi Baroka, pointing to two men, these two men have a share in the world to come. Rabbi Baroka went over to them, obviously deeply curious, and he says to them, what is your occupation? To which they responded, we are jesters, and we create laughter and good cheer wherever we go. Now this text is especially poignant when we consider the rabbinic teaching that no one is assured a portion in the world to come during their lifetime, lest they come to sin later on in life. There's a classic example of one of the great sages of old who served as the high priest in the holy temple for 80 years, only then to defect. No one, friends, that is, besides those who dedicate their lives to bringing joy and laughter to others. So what I'd like to dwell on for the remainder of the talk is what I would refer to as the greatest joke ever written by God. By way of an introduction, here's a quote from Professor Mayer Soloveitchik that succinctly defines what makes a joke funny in the first place and why Jewish people in particular are obsessed with humor. Text three, Jews loved jokes because they expressed the idea that there's more to life than meets the eye, that a pattern is not eternally set in stone, that our expectations can be uprooted, that there is a completely different way of seeing a given situation. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the story of the economic crisis in Israel and an emergency Knesset session. And David gets up after all the debate and he says, I have the perfect solution to solve our economic crisis. Let's go to war with the United States of America. Everyone starts to scream at him, America, our ally. He says, it's quite simple. We'll go to war with America, we'll lose, and America will do whatever she does whenever she wins a war. She'll pour billions of dollars of humanitarian aid into our hospitals, into our highways, and our economic crisis will be solved. So Zev gets up from the back, he says, that's all good if we lose, but what if we win? <laughs> a joke is a truth wrapped in a smile. So let me unpack that. A number of years ago, I shared a synopsis of this idea about five years ago at the retreat, but I think it's worth repeating. A number of years ago, I attended a benefit dinner for the Make-A-Wish Foundation which is an organization that helps fulfill the dreams of children with life-threatening illness. The keynote speaker was a well-known professor named Tal Ben-Shachar, who is credited with giving the most popular course in Harvard's history. On which topic, by the way? Happiness. During the evening, a moving film was shown portraying the joy that the children experienced when their lifelong dreams came true. I must admit that at some point, a cynical question crossed my mind. Weren't the large sums of money being spent on these one-off bursts of positive emotion excessive, even misspent? Instead of paying for the extravagant fantasies of ill children with little chance of survival, couldn't these monies have been put to better use trying to actually save lives? Secondly, was granting the fantasies of ill children even good for them? 
After all, having received the thing they wanted most in life, might their life from here on not be one big letdown, an anticlimax? In fact, might these children's lives be better off without this organization somehow skewing their sense of reality and exaggerating the realm of possibility, potentially planting seeds of false hope and expectation into these already fragile hearts and minds? After the talk, I approached Tal, who was a very warm and humble man, with these questions, and I was amazed by his response. He said, upon learning about the work of Make-A-Wish Foundation, I was asked by its director to do research into whether or not, in fact, there are actual health benefits in granting these children their wishes. Tal and his team of researchers took over 60 children suffering from life-threatening diseases, and they placed 30 of them in a control group, and the other 30 were granted their wishes. What they observed amazed them. The physiological and psychological health of those whose wishes had been granted had improved remarkably. Tal explained, when we looked at the research, we asked ourselves, how does this work? And we believe, he says, that the answer lies in the fact that the gratified participants exercised a different muscle than the one they were used to using. They exercised what he called the muscle of impossibility. You see, in life, we tend to create two categories. In one, we place our dreams and desires, those that we deem possible, and in the other, we place those we deem impossible. And as life goes on, the line between those two categories is increasingly reinforced. So for example, when Michael Jordan walks through the door of a child who could only have dreamed of meeting him one day, a major switch occurs in the mind of that child. Something that had previously belonged to the realm of the impossible has suddenly proven possible. And here's the point. Once one impossibility in their life has proven possible, the lines between possible and impossible are blurred, and the children begin to think to themselves, well, why can't the same apply when it comes to the illness that I'm fighting? And it's this paradigm shift that gives these children the strength, the faith, and the fortitude to get better. And when I heard this idea, it struck me that of all peoples to walk this blessed earth, the Jewish people have arguably exercised the muscle of impossibility more than any other. Indeed, as so many historians have eloquently articulated, our survival has been nothing short of miraculous. From Mark Twain to Tolstoy to Pascal, our people have been called anything from immortal to eternal to invincible, all agreeing on one thing, on one basic premise, that for the Jewish people, the conventional parameters of history simply do not exist. Friends, do you know the first anti-Semite to understand this truth was? It was actually Balak, a man we read about not too long ago, the king of the ancient Moabite nation. In the book of Bamidbar, the Torah tells the story of how Balak wanted to wage war against the Jewish people and failed. At face value, the saga seems like so many others in the long and persistent history of anti-Semitism and Jewish survival. As we say in the Passover text, for not just one alone has risen against us, but in every generation they rise up against us to destroy us. Or as the renowned humorist, some referred to as Rabbi Jackie Mason, liked to say, what is the best summary of all Jewish holidays? They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. 
On a bit of a lighter note, they tell a joke of Hitler, may his name be erased. He goes to a fortune teller and he asks her, on what day will I die? The fortune teller assures him that he would die on a Jewish holiday. How are you so sure of that, he asked. She replied, any day you die, sir, will be a Jewish holiday. Closer analysis, however, illustrates the fact that Balak was anything but a typical anti-Semite. He understood then what many philosophers would only come to realize much later on, that the Jewish people are not subject to the normal rules of history. I'd like you to turn your attention to text four, a quote from Thomas Newton. The preservation of the Jews is really one of the most signal and illustrious acts of divine providence. And what but a supernatural power could have preserved them in such a manner as none other nation upon earth hath been preserved. Friends, this is but one of many samples I could share. Unless you think that this is the sycophantic hyper hyperbole of Philo-Semites, how about the next quote from Mein Kampf? Text five, when over long periods of human history, I scrutinized the activity of the Jewish people, suddenly there arose up in me the fearful question whether inscrutable destiny, perhaps for reasons unknown to us poor mortals, did not with eternal an immutable resolve, desire the final victory of this little nation. Balak, my friends, was a discerning student of history. He recognized the thread of divine providence woven into the existence and the continuity of the Jewish people. And hence, he knew that if he had any chance at eliminating them, he couldn't use the normal instruments of genocide, but would have to compromise the source of their destiny, not by earthly means, but through spiritual manipulation, which explains why, instead of seeking out a military expert, he went looking for a seer, a Gentile prophet named Bilam, instructing him, please come and curse this people, for they are too powerful for me. Ultimately, Bilam failed. And instead, he ends up blessing the Jewish people, leading to his fall from grace and a spectacular humiliation. In this respect, he was no different to all other anti-Semites, each of whom eventually come to learn the spiritual truth that God's covenant and commitment to the Jewish people is immutable and eternal. In the prophetic words of Jeremiah, look at text 6. Thus says God, who establishes the sun to light the day, the laws of the moon and stars to light the night. If these natural laws should ever give way before me, says God, only then shall the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me for all time. Our continuity is as assured as nature itself. On a bit of a lighter note, some of you may know the joke of an anti-Semite drinking in a bar, and he notices a Jew sitting at a table nearby, and he doesn't like it at all. He calls out to the bartender, nodding at the Jew, a round of the good stuff for everyone here except the Jew. Everyone happily receives a glass of premium scotch. The anti-Semite looks over at the Jew and he sees that he's actually grinning. The Jew is smiling back at him. The anti-Semite loses his satisfied expression. Bartender, give everyone a drink of your finest plus an appetizer. He looks directly at the Jew and he adds, except the Jew. The Jewish man looks at the anti-Semite Smiles again, this time just a little bit wider. Furious, the anti-Semite calls out, is that Jew simply stupid or is he pretending to be? Oh no, sir, someone responds. He owns the place. 
But friends, let's go back to the very beginning of the Jewish story when the survival of our people was nowhere near as obvious or assured as we now know it to be with hindsight. Join me on the following thought exercise. Imagine participating in a meeting of Jewish sages and elders discussing which passage from the entire Torah should be selected to be read on the most consequential day of the Jewish calendar. As the moderator goes around the table, your turn comes in to weigh in on this important question, which might affect all future generations of the Jewish people. Which selection would you choose? Now, I'd understand if you were to choose the account of creation, or the account of the exodus from Egypt, or the revelation at Sinai, each of which establishes certain fundamental principles of Jewish belief and mark watershed moments in the development of mankind and the Jewish people. And yet the passage that was voted in for the first day of Rosh Hashanah tells the seemingly dated and irrelevant story of an elderly woman who was blessed with a child after many barren years. And the passage chosen to be read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah recounts the terrifying story of how that baby born to that elderly woman was nearly killed. Now, am I missing something? But you see, the baby born was the very first Jewish baby born and hence would come to represent the Jewish people and its history in its entirety. One can only imagine Sarah sitting in the waiting room nervously, anxiously anticipating the results of her tests when the fertility experts entered the room with grave expressions on their faces and somberly advised Sarah to give up her dream of ever having a child. It's not happening, dear. Take your dream of giving birth out of the basket of possible and place it into the dustbin of impossible. And indeed, from Sarah's laughter upon hearing from the angel that within a year she would be blessed with a child, it seems that on some level she may have internalized that pessimistic medical verdict. But then, like a joke whose punchline is unexpected, Isaac is born, and in an appropriate nod both to his past and to his children's future, he is named Yitzchak, from the Hebrew root tzachok, which means laughter, providing the context for his life and for the future of his offspring. In the words of the great German rabbi and linguist Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, text 7, laughter, tzachok, is triggered when we notice something ridiculous or absurd. And there can be no greater absurdity than the origin story of the Jewish people. The beginning of the Jewish people was implausible, to which rational mind, which calculates only on the basis of cause and effect, this people's history, expectations, hopes, and life appear as ludicrous pretension. Jewish history begins to make sense, indeed, deserves to be studied with utmost seriousness only if one evaluates it on the basis of the higher causality of the cause of all causes, if one believes in the omnipotent will of God who intervenes powerfully in the affairs of the world. It was imperative that our ancestors know this from the beginning and that their descendants always remember this. That is why God waited until the nation's patriarch and matriarch reached a preposterous age. That is why God began to fulfill his promise only after all human hope was lost. God wished to create a nation that would be Elohim, a finger of God, an indication of God in the midst of mankind. From the beginning to the end of its existence, this nation would stand opposed to all the forces operating in world history. 
The laughter that follows the Jew on their way through history testifies to the divine character of their path. The laughter then doesn't disturb them because they were born and exist by virtue of that laughter. Getting back to the singularity of Jewish history and existence, it's the metaphysical existence and survival of the Jews that is revisited on the second day of Rosh Hashanah when we read about Isaac's near-death experience, which teaches that even when the Jewish people are bound to an altar and the blade of a knife is pressed to our neck, literally or figuratively, we must never despair, for salvation can come in the blink of an eye. You know the joke about the three Jews who were going to be executed. They were lined up in front of a firing squad, and the sergeant in charge asked the first Jew, do you want a blindfold? Yes, says the Jew with a resigned tone. Do you want a blindfold, he says to the second Jew. Okay, replies the second Jew. And then he turns to the third, do you want a blindfold? No, the third Jew declares emphatically. At this point, the second Jew leans over to the third and whispers, don't make trouble, take the blindfold. Friends, our people have consistently stood on the precipice of extinction only to amaze onlookers with our supernatural survival based on divine providence. You know the joke about the fellow who really doesn't doing very well. And his wife brings him to the doctor, she checks him out, and then she asks him to step out because the doctor says, I need a word with your wife. He steps out and the doctor turns to the wife and says, listen, your husband is suffering from extreme stress disorder. And if you do the following, perhaps he might get better. She says, what do I need to do? He says, you got to wake him up with breakfast in bed every single day. And then as he goes to work, you got to prepare his favorite lunch. Throughout the day, you have to send him three WhatsApps and four texts, telling him how he's the best thing since sliced bread. He's God's gift to humanity. You can't live without him. When he comes back home at the end of the day, you got to greet him with mood lighting, his favorite music and dinner. And then you should dance, of course, together and be intimate. And in this way, over time, he may get better. She takes notes. She leaves the office. Her husband and her get back into the car. And nervously, he asks her, what did the doctor say? She says, he says, you're not going to make it. In 1964, Look Magazine ran a cover story entitled The Vanishing American Jew. Boldly, the article explained why in all certainty there would no longer be any Jews left in the United States in the 21st century. Well, we all know what happened. Look Magazine disappeared, but Jews survived. We could afford to be amused that once again, those who predicted our early demise were so powerfully mistaken. To paraphrase the immortal words of Mark Twain, who had the remarkable experience of reading his own erroneous obituary in the local newspaper, and to which he responded, the report of my death were greatly exaggerated. In fact, people have been writing our obituary almost from the time of our birth. The oldest recorded mention of the name Israel is in an Egyptian hymn of victory dating to Pharaoh Merneptah, about 1230 BCE. And it reads, and I quote, Israel is laid waste. His offspring is wiped out. Friends, you know where our enemies are today? You know where the ancient Babylonians and Romans and Greeks are today? 
They're all in museums, and you can find a lot about them on Wikipedia. But here we are, the descendants of Isaac, of Abraham, of Sarah, having the last laugh, as it were. Somehow history records a very different ending to the story. Passover reminds us that it was Pharaoh and his people who were defeated by the miraculous intervention of Hashem. And the Jews to this day, descendants of slaves in what was once a glorious empire, continue to write magnificent chapters in the story of humankind. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the joke of a rabbi, an imam, and a priest who were talking about how they would like to be remembered one day and what they would like people to be saying at their funeral. The priest says, I'd like them to talk about how much I cared for my congregation. The imam says, I'd like them to speak about how pious I was as a man of faith, a man of the cloth. And the rabbi says, I'd like someone to say, while pointing to the coffin, look, he's moving. <laughs> and if this is true of Jewish history at large, it is especially true of Israel, Eretz Israel. A few years ago, the Jewish community in the UK marked 100 years since the Balfour Declaration. During a talk he gave on the occasion, Simon Siebeck Montefiore, a renowned author, shared the following charming story. When one of the key negotiators of the Balfour Declaration, Sir Mark Sykes, came out of the cabinet office with the news that the Balfour Declaration was to be given, he called out to Professor Chaim Weizmann Mazel tov, Dr. Weizmann. It's a boy. On a bit of a lighter note, they tell the joke of Sarah and Moshe, a modern Orthodox couple. She was pregnant, and her water breaks on Shabbat. And so, of course, as you know, you're allowed to violate Shabbat in order to preserve life. However, in order to minimize Shabbat violation, the husband, Moshe, when calling up the taxi dispatcher, asks him to send a non-Jewish driver. And he makes the point a few times, please send a non-Jewish driver. In any event, when the car pulls up and they get into the car, they hear the dispatcher asking the driver, did you pick up the anti-Semites yet? In 1974, Rabbi Asher Wade, a U.S. Army chaplain, befriended a Jewish-American officer named Stuart. Stuart didn't strike him as being a religious man, and so Rabbi Wade was surprised one day to see Stuart wearing a yarmulke. Upon questioning Stuart's reasons for donning this unconventional attire, Stuart told Rabbi Wade the fascinating story behind this. As part of their first year studies, cadets were enrolled in a course called History of Military Tactics and Field Strategies, taught by a three-star lieutenant general with a PhD in military strategy. The course surveyed the major battles in history, including those of the Romans, the Middle Ages, down to the last battles of the modern era. During the final two weeks of the course, which were devoted to reviewing the material, Cadet Stewart raised his hand with a question, and he says, why didn't we survey any of the battles fought by the Jewish people, either in ancient times or in modern times? The normally friendly general snapped back with an order for me to see him in his office after class, remembers Stewart. Upon entering the general's office, Stuart was ordered to close the door. The general then said, don't think that the staff here at West Point have left the Jewish wars unnoticed. We have examined and analyzed them, and we do not teach them at West Point. And that's because, according to military strategy and textbook tactics, 
The Jews should have lost every one of those wars. You should have been swept into the dustbin of history long ago, but you were not. This past year, we hired a new junior instructor. During a private staff meeting, the Arab-Israeli wars came under discussion. We puzzled at how you won those wars. Suddenly, this junior instructor chirped up and jokingly said, Honorable gentlemen, it seems quite obvious how they are winning their wars. God is winning their wars for them. Nobody laughed. And the reason is, soldier, that it seems to be an unwritten rule at West Point that God is winning your wars, but God does not fit into military textbooks. You're dismissed, concluded the general. I left the general's office, continued Stuart. I had never been so shocked and even embarrassed in my life. Wouldn't you know what I said to myself? That I would have to come to West Point and find out how great my God is from a non-practicing Presbyterian three-star general. By the way, I verified the story with a dear friend, an esteemed rabbi named Rabbi Benjamin Blech, who heard the story from Rabbi Wade himself. There's an anecdote that I included in one of the books I published that I think is relevant. A short time after the Six-Day War, an individual was reporting to the Rebbe on his trip to Israel. The Rebbe commented, I hope you weren't influenced by certain media in Israel where Israel is portrayed as a secular society. In my view, an Israeli who tells you he is an atheist doesn't really mean it in his heart of hearts. For if a person observes open miracles again and again and again, is it possible to remain an atheist? I have a colleague who teaches Talmud in Israel, and he has a so-called secular and even anti-religious colleague who's a professor at the same university. And this rabbinic scholar once asked him, would you like to join a class on the Talmud that I give? And he says, are you joking? Do you know me? Do you know my values? Do you know my ideology? He says, I am so anti-religious that every Friday afternoon I look up the Shabbat candle times to make sure that after Shabbat enters, I make a point of eating a pork, a piece of pork. My friend, without skipping a beat, says to him, my friend, and you and I are not so different. We both celebrate Shabbos, but in different ways. <laughs> they tell the joke about a professor of archaeology who was examining an old mummy. And when he finishes, he makes two observations. One, that the body belonged to an ancient Philistine who had lived during the famous showdown between David and Goliath. And the second observation is that he had died of a heart attack. But how can you tell, asked his students? The professor replied, when examining him, I found a piece of parchment in his hand, and it was a betting slip that said, 5,000 shekels on Goliath. It's fascinating to note that this inspiring message of divine providence was the one engraved on the coins that three of our greatest leaders minted for personal use. Abraham, King David, and Mordechai of the Purim story. The Talmud teaches that the coins of our patriarch Abraham had the figure of an old man and woman on its face and those of a youth and a maiden on the obverse, signifying 
that after Abraham and Sarah had grown old, their youth was renewed and they had a son. The Midrash teaches that the coins that King David issued had a shepherd's staff and satchel on the face and a tower on its other side, an allusion to his having been raised to the throne from the sheepfold. And in the story of Purim, Mordechai's coins bore sackcloth and ashes on the face and a crown of gold on its back, emblematic of his personal and the collective Jewish positive change of fate. The imagery of our ancestors, the ones they chose to grace, the symbol of their power, demonstrated their deep-seated belief, born out of personal and the collective Jewish experience, that with faith and with fortitude, anything is truly possible. And it was in the same spirit that the founder of Hasidism, the Holy Baal Shem Tov, used to sign his name as he did, not as Yisrael from Tlust, Galicia, after his birthplace, but instead as Yisrael of Okop, which is Polish for trench, after the circumstances into which he was born. The Rebbe once pointed this out in a talk, and he explained that Tlust was originally a walled town, but at some point in history, the walls were destroyed, leaving numerous trenches. The Balshemto's parents were so poor that they couldn't afford even a modest home in which to live, so they sought refuge in one of these trenches. Yet this child of poor descent, an orphan, persecuted in circles both religious and otherwise, went on to light the collective Jewish soul and imagination on fire with ideas that still reverberate today and are set to affect the coming of Mashiach. And so the next time that life's challenges become overwhelming and a sense of impossible feels like it's closing in on you, recall the story of that little child who was never meant to be, let alone survive, and remember that that child is you. Reflect on the historical improbability, some would say impossibility, of each and every one of us sitting here today after thousands of years of literally living on the edge. And when you look at the general turbulence that is affecting our world and you think to yourself cynically that only a miracle can right the ship of history, remember those famous words attributed to Ben-Gurion that a Jew who does not believe in miracles is not a realist. And if you begin to feel like anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is the new normal, remember this. The Jewish people are not the joke of history. We are the punchline of the greatest joke ever written by God. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.